I want to quote from a musical. I've never done that before. And I have watched this musical, The Phantom of the Opera. I don't remember it. I don't, which probably means I didn't care for it very much. But I know some, we have some phantom fanatics in this room. But The Phantom in The Phantom of the Opera says, quote, Nighttime sharpens, heightens each sensation, darkness wakes, and stirs imagination. When I read that, I was like, that's why I hate nighttime. I hate nighttime. I'm a really light sleeper, extremely light sleeper. And I hate nighttime because basically that's like when I'm alone with my thoughts. Okay? And I know some of you are like, I'm exactly like that. Oftentimes it's nighttime where things just come out, where all my worst thoughts come out, where you know something during the day when I'm vertical seems very manageable, but when I'm at night or when I'm laying down, it suddenly seems like a catastrophe. And that's oftentimes my personality. I am a self-described cynic. I oftentimes overanalyze. I trust my assumptions. I think I can read people's hearts and minds. And I catastrophize. That's what someone told me I do. I catastrophize and make things worse. Oftentimes that happens at night. Sometimes it's like pretend conversations or, you know, just where I'm like debating with someone or sometimes it's like the inner lawyer in me that is trying so hard to justify my position, to justify my righteousness. In my best moments at night, I'll pray and in my worst moments, I'll just fall into despair. I'll just lay there thinking and thinking for hours and hours. And once that happens, if I don't get up and start walking around or turn on the lights, then I can fall into a pretty dark place. A lot of that has to do with um, like burdens that I face, burdens with family. And I would say maybe at least half, maybe more than that, is maybe half the burdens that I face with church. And maybe not burdens that I personally am facing, but burdens that you're facing that I start thinking about and trying to overanalyze and try to figure out how can I fix that? It's this like control freak in me, to be honest, where it's like, I want to be the savior. I want to, how can I be the problem solver? And I think the more I get anxious about it, maybe I can do something about it. Most of the time when I'm laying there at night, I'm thinking about those that I'm leading, those that I feel responsible for, And I feel burdened. And in that sense, I think I'm, um, you know, pastors, they say, need to have like a thick skin but a soft heart. I I struggle a lot with like the thick skin part of it. I wish I I was tougher. But just being honest, I know that I'm very sensitive. I'm extremely sensitive. I'm very easy to discourage, and I'm also very easy to encourage. I think a lot of that is just the cynic in me where I oftentimes go to worst-case scenarios. And so especially in my worst moments, and I think this is like when people ask me how have I grown in the past couple years, I think one of the things that I would say is that maybe one of the best ways I've grown is my ability to handle myself. You know, oftentimes we lay there at night or you're driving or you're in the shower and you just start thinking and you start listening to yourself. Your mind just goes into overdrive and you just start spiraling into these different, you know, conversations. And oftentimes I'm listening to myself rather than talking to myself, like preaching to myself, counseling to myself. 
that's why I used to like journal a lot. It's just like I had all this junk I needed to get out on paper. Then I would, where I'm listening to myself, like, oh, I can't believe this person did this and this and this. And then I would try to put on my gospel lenses. And then I would try to counsel myself, the person that I just saw or the person on paper, so that I could talk to myself, so that I could preach to myself. And so this past year, I would say there's a conversation that's been happening inside of my mind. And so I'm just sort of bringing you in to this conversation where oftentimes I get burdened and I just don't want to deal with this stuff anymore. Like whether it's family or church, my own burdens, you know, I, I, I honestly think like my personal life is like I could take care of myself in some ways. Like I don't have any major issues, thankfully, in my life, but it's like when those around me are suffering, that's when I get burdened and I can feel overcome. And I know there's some people in this room that are just like that. And so at that time, how do I sort of speak to myself when I just want to run away? When I want to give up, when I want to take a step back, where I just want to go to church, man, oh, I just, it would be nice to just be a visitor, to have no responsibility, to have no accountability, to have no expectations. And in those moments, that, that hideousness that's in my heart, that flesh, if I just were to give into it, it would be an ugly thing. And so how have I, or how has God, I hope, spoken to me used his word to help me handle myself better in a godly way, in a spirit-filled way, especially when it comes to the burdens of church, being a leader in the church. Today, I want to encourage you, challenge you, and motivate you to embrace those types of burdens, to embrace and see how much of a privilege it is to be a burden bearer. We oftentimes don't feel that. Maybe right now in your own family, everyone goes to you. Everyone lays their burdens on you. Maybe that's how it is in the church. I used to get bitter about that kind of stuff, but little by little, I think I have seen that as a privilege to do that for my family and to do that for my church. And so you can apply this sermon to your family, to your workplace, wherever you're a burden bearer, but I'm going to zoom in on the church, and I hope that you will embrace and run towards and see it as a privilege to be a burden bearer for others. That's my goal. And so two, two points for this sermon. I'm going to focus a lot more on the second point. The first point is I have a burden bearer. I have a burden bearer. And the second point is, I get to be a burden bearer. So I have a burden bearer personally, and I get to be a burden bearer. I get to be a burden bearer, okay? And so let's talk about the first point, I have a burden bearer. You know, someone asked me while we were at a boba shop, we were just talking about church and things like that, like, oh, how do you sort of handle things like when they get hard, when they get burdensome? And my simple answer to her was, it's God. I have to depend on God. His grace has to be sufficient for me. And let me elaborate on that, especially for this person, because that was all I said to her. One of the most impactful passages in my life, if not the most impactful passage of my life, is Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 is known as, you know, it's the gospel of God's son, right? It's the suffering servant, the burden bearer. 
And Rand has done, honestly, Rand has done a masterful job in his sermon on Isaiah 53, and it's a shame, honestly, that we did the Isaiah series online, because I think that was such an amazing series, and that was one of the best sermons I've ever heard, and I keep plugging Rand's sermons, and I hate what I have become, Um, but it's a good sermon. Go listen to that, okay? Go listen to Isaiah 53. But I, So I'm not going to do like a deep exposition of it, but the idea here is that Jesus is our suffering servant. He's not just a servant. We all know Jesus is our servant. We read a passage how Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, but he also came to give his life as a ransom for many, a suffering servant, our burden bearer. That's sort of how I think about this passage. And let me just read the heart of the passage, the heart of the book of Isaiah in Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, and see this through the lens of Christ being our burden bearer. Verse 4, surely he has borne or carried the burden of our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed and stricken, stricken by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, by his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord, L-O-R-D, Yahweh has laid on him, Jesus, the suffering servant, the iniquity of us all. Just look at this language that our suffering servant had to bear, okay, what he had to bear for us. Look at the language here, despised. If you look at Isaiah 53 as a whole, despised, rejected, a man of sorrows, a man rejected by all men, grief, stricken, afflicted, pierced, crushed, scourged, oppressed, harassed. He was beat so severely beyond recognition. Crushed, bruised, all while an innocent sufferer, a man without deceit, fully righteous, never said a word, submitted to this, didn't defend himself to Herod, to Caiaphas, to Annas, to Pilate, silent. Because he has borne, notice the use of the pronouns, he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He has brought us peace by his wounds. We are healed. This is my burden bearer. He took the blame. He was the scapegoat. We are the guilty ones. He's the guilt offering. We're the ones that should have carried the burden of our our sin. He's the Lamb of God, our salvation, our suffering servant, our burden bearer. He's not, you don't look at this passage first and say he's our example. No, he's our substitute. He stood in our place on our behalf. He suffered in our place. He's our shield. A shield takes the blow in the place of another. He paid the wrath of God. He paid the penalty, or he rather, he satisfied the wrath of God by paying the penalty for our sin. Think about John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son who chose to be crushed, pierced for our sins 
so that we who believe can have eternal life. I have a burden bearer. Everyone else may come to me, but I have a burden bearer. He is a Christ, the Son of the living God. He carried the burden I could never carry, and he still carries my burdens today. You might think that what I'm saying is, of course, you know, that applies to Jesus, saves us from our sin. He saved us from our past. And this has to do with acceptance with God. We all know if you're a believer now, you're accepted with, by God. You're no longer separated. You're a child of God. And so often we think the gospel just washed us of our past sins, but it has nothing to do with today. That's not the case at all. The gospel applies to the past, the present, and the future. I am saved, or I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. He is still saving me from myself today. And if you're a child of God, because this only applies to children of God, if you have not put your faith in Christ, he's not your burden bearer, he's your enemy. But if you have put your faith in Christ, you have a burden bearer too, and let me describe him for you. He's a burden bearer who invites me, he invites you to come to him in times of need to find mercy and grace. Hebrews 4.16. He's a burden bearer who will provide our physical and spiritual daily needs. Matthew 7.7. He's a burden bearer who always has soft eyes towards your weaknesses. He's sympathetic. He understands. Hebrews 4.15. He's a burden bearer who says, come to me, all, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, Matthew eleven twenty eight. This one is another one of my life passages. He's a burden bearer who will give us strength when we're so weak, when we're wounded, when we're tired, 2 Corinthians 12, 10. He's a burden bearer who died, I mean, who cried, who mourned who had tears at the death of one of his beloved friends in John 11. He's a burden bearer right now who knows he needs to pray for you and he intercedes for you and his prayers are always answered in Hebrews 7.25. He's a burden bearer when you cannot articulate what is going on in your heart and all you could do is sigh, all you could do is groan. He's a burden bearer at that moment who understands the core of your heart and he intercedes to the Father on your behalf, Romans 8. He's a burden bearer who won't attack you in your weakness. He won't hide from you, but rather he's described as a father of mercies and God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians 1.3. He's a burden bearer, John 13.1 says, that says, who will love you to the very end. He's a burden bearer who says to cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Let me, let me land on this one real quick. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This idea of humbling yourself, humble yourself, that's the main imperative here. That's the command. How do you humble yourself? The participle is casting all your anxieties on him. That's how you do it. And so often it's our pride that keeps us from laying our burdens upon Christ. 
Isn't that interesting where this verse connects anxiety to pride? You don't want to lay your burdens on anyone else. You think you can handle it yourself. You're the master of your own destiny. You're in control. You're the problem solver. You could figure it out. When the burden bearer is saying, cast your anxieties on me. And I love how it says he cares for you and, and humble yourself under, beneath his mighty hand. He's, he cares and he's powerful. Jesus again and again calls us to lay our burdens upon him, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's like freedom. When you are so humble, not that you don't have problems, but you're good at casting your anxieties on him, there's like a freedom. You just relax because you have a rock-solid faith in God, in his caring hand. And on a side note, when we refuse to lay our burdens on others because of our pride, I think you're missing out on something beautiful there. Isn't that often true? Like, ah, I, I can handle it. I don't want to put my burdens on others. I don't want to put my burdens on God. It's your pride. He is the burden bearer that I need. That's what I want. He has all the qualities cares for me. He loves me. He'll die for me. He suffered for me. He'll love me to the very end. And frankly, if you haven't internalized this, you will be faithful to church for a couple years, but the second things go wrong and it's too costly, too inconvenient, you'll drop out. You'll see all the failures of those around you, the failure of us as burden bearers. Or you'll have nothing left in the tank. There's no, nothing being deposited into you. And so you'll just get bitter. You'll get cynical. You'll say, I used to be into that church leadership stuff. But you don't have a burden bearer. And just in my experience, so often I overestimate my ability and I underestimate the love of Christ. I give myself way too much credit. And... I have to make a distinction here. We're all called to be burden bearers, but we are first and foremost called to point people to the ultimate burden bearer. I have tried to be the savior in people's lives, and it's a burden that has crushed me. The best thing I could do for you is not get you to depend on me. It's to get you to fix your eyes on Christ. That's what counseling should do. It's not to teach you how to get some tips on how to make your life better. It's to teach you how to, how to fix your eyes on the ultimate burden bearer. The problem solver in me, I've had to learn this the hard way, you know, thinks I can figure it out. The control freak thinks that in me thinks that I can be God. And honestly, when I get into that mode, I get real anxious and I just make things worse. I can't handle it. I can't sleep. I can't save them. I can't change hearts. You know, I can't even get my, my son and daughter to eat their lunch, right? I can't even do that. What makes me think I can change people's hearts? I can give some kind of temporary relief at best, but I cannot give eternal hope and real transformation. That is what my burden bear has to do. I have a burden bear. 
I could, I could just end it there. You look at Isaiah 53. He's an amazing burden bearer. And that continues today. And it's in those moments in the middle of the night when I look at him that I can get through it. Now, let's talk about we get to be a we get to be a burden bearer, right? I get to be a suffering servant as well. It is my role. God has called us to be his representatives and to be instruments of his grace. That's how God wants his church to function. And honestly, I I look at my life and just like the first part of my life and I can sort of see how God has been molding me to bear people's burdens. That's how my environment has formed me. You know, when I was growing up, like single mom, like I had two older troublemaker brothers and I'm the baby brother always home with my mom. And just all I knew how to do is just sit there in the middle of the night, comfort her in her tears. And my mom says, that's why you became a pastor. My mom said that to me. It's because you always comforted me at night. Just say, like, are you okay? Are you okay? That's all you could do as a little kid, right? That's sort of how it's been my whole life, especially with my family, just uh, bearing a lot of burden with my family. And again, I used to get really bit burdened and bitter about that. Just like, why is it like that? Why does it seem like my own? only my family is like that? It seems like that. Everyone's family is some way like that. But it feels like, oh, I'm just just feels like I'm the only one that has to carry such a burden. Now I still get tired, but I'm not bitter about that. I have embraced that with my family. I will be the one to take initiative. I will be the one to go after people. I will be the one that you should call. And again, there are times where I wish I didn't have to do it, you know, with family, with church. I wish I could go run away. That's my flesh. I wish I could quit. I wish I could drop out. I wish I could just take a break. But overall, I think this is a conviction of mine that my conscience just won't let me do that anymore. People ask me, like, when you step down from being a pastor, you're not a pastor at the church anymore. Like, do you, do you, is it different? I'm like, no, it's not different. My conscience just won't let me sit on the sidelines with church. Whether pastor, elder, church member, that's what I should be doing. I should be in the trenches because I am a burden bearer. I am a suffering servant. That is my identity. Oftentimes we think of ourselves as servants. We are servants, but we are suffering servants. And there's a passage I've been reflecting on, and it's just a weird passage. It's a strange passage, and I previously ignored this passage and any passage like it. And it talks about like participating in the suffering of Christ. And whether you look at Philippians 3, or there's all these different passages, but let me put it up in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 through 26. It says, this is Paul speaking, he just talked about the supremacy of Christ And then he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to to his saints. Okay, This is a difficult passage, and... Let me just be clear on what it's not saying. It's not saying that Christ 
work on the cross was incomplete, it was insufficient to cover all of our sins, that it was finished but not really finished. That's not what this verse is saying. Okay, you just read the context of Colossians, just read verses 15 to 23. Paul has just emphasized that Christ has made peace between God the Father and us through the blood of Jesus. It is sufficient. But what's missing is that the infinite value of Christ's afflictions, his suffering, it's not presented, it's not known and trusted throughout the world. It's not even known, fully known and trusted throughout our church. Not everyone sees the value of Christ's death. Not everyone has even heard of it. This has to be carried and lived out. There has to be flesh put upon this idea by ministers of the gospel who will fill up what is lacking in Christ's affliction by extending it to others. Through the godly suffering of his people, we personally present to those around us and to the world the suffering of Christ. Our calling is to make the death of Christ real for people by the suffering we experience. His church reveals his suffering through our suffering, the body of Christ. You want to know what it's going to take to make the gospel real for the people around you, to take the gospel to the ends of the world? It's going to take suffering servants. And that's what it'll take to make the gospel real to those that are listening right now. You are willing to suffer for them. Paul's suffering is a picture of Jesus' suffering. And when we suffer well for the sake of the body, that is the church and we are walking advertisements to the truth of Good Friday and Easter. You know, there's nothing more powerful and persuasive than a suffering love that joyfully suffers for you, that rejoices in those afflictions. You make the word of God known, you make it real and in person. It's abstract before, but through you, they see it. Second Corinthians puts it another way in chapter 4. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. That's pretty much the message of 2 Corinthians, that in your weakness, in your suffering, the Spirit will give you strength and you will extend grace to other people. And what will be the result? Chapter 4, verse 15, for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. That is why we exist. If you are truly in the trenches of this spiritual war, if you're on mission to seek and save the lost, you will experience some level of suffering or pain. It will be costly. And on the flip side of that, if you find that it's never, ever inconvenient or costly for you, 
then you need to ask yourself if you have joined the mission of God to reclaim this territory. Paul says he rejoices when he suffers for your sake, when I suffer for your sake, because there's a gospel need being met there. God has called me to joyfully endure suffering for him and his church. I get to be a burden bearer. You get to be a burden bearer. It's not something I have to do. It's something I get to do. What a privilege. You think you're burdening me when you come? You are. When you come to me, you ask me questions, you want advice, you are. And I consider it such a privilege. That is who I am. What would it be if I I don't want to lay burdens on the burden bearer? I consider it such a privilege if you allow me to share in your suffering. There is a beauty to shared suffering. God has called you, church, to joyfully endure suffering for him and the church. Now, what does that look like for us? What does that look like for us? How do we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and love the church? How do we exhibit this suffering love? If you're a missionary for our deacon, Ruth, who's out in training, it's very obvious she's going to have to suffer if she wants to go and reach unreached people groups. We know that. That's how she's being trained. For us, okay, let me give two, two ways, if you want to call it applications, on how we can have a suffering, burden-bearing love for others. First, burden bearers are committed to loving simmer, sinners, simmers, Burden bearers are committed to loving sinners long-term, even when it's messy. With all the emotional messiness. You want to know how to be a suffering servant? Commit yourself to a group of saved sinners, not for three weeks, not for three months, not even for three years, but for a lifetime. Try loving them. And then you'll find, you'll, be, you'll truly understand how much you can love. You'll be tested. Commit yourself to a church. Lay down your selfish desires. Consider others more important than yourselves. To do that, that takes suffering. That takes courage. That takes sacrifice. And that's honestly the fastest way you'll grow. And in the process, you'll make the word of God real and known to others. You stay here, you will find a spiritual, emotional mess and so much baggage that comes with it. And we get to bear that with one another. It's so much easier to have, you know, to forever just be a visitor, to have a visitor mindset, so much easier to ignore, run away, even when there are toxic people. those so different from you, those everything in you that you just want to run away from them. You know, I I see it all the time, right? And I know what they're saying. They're saying self-care. You got, you know, don't cut out toxic people in your life. Cut out those that don't add value to your life. That doesn't apply to the church. You want to know what the real measure of our church is? It's not how we handle those that are very easy to handle. It's how we love those that feel like they're impossible to love. 
they've got baggage, they've got backgrounds, they've got records, they, they, they just bring so much baggage. And we get to take care of them. We will suffer for them and give them life. I don't give into this self-love narrative. Of course, there's a way we care for ourselves. That's self-care. That's biblical. Watch out for your own soul. But it's not self-love. It's not be more centered upon yourself. The Bible assumes you are already too centered upon yourself. We already love ourselves too much. It's not self-love. It's self-denial. Forget yourself. And be obsessed with others as much as you're obsessed with yourself. That's what that verse, love your neighbor as yourself, is saying. The Bible already says we take care of ourselves. We think of ourselves. We connect everything to ourselves. As much as you think of others, uh, yourself, think of others. That moment when you're tested, the honeymoon is over. You just want to run away. You just want to give up. You face the sin of others bearing down upon you. Be a suffering servant. And Peter again and again takes the imagery from Isaiah 53. Everyone in the New Testament steals from Isaiah 53 as motivation for us. How do you respond when you come across people's evil and their burdens? Isaiah 53, verse, I mean, uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 21 through 25. Look at what it says. For to this you have been called, this idea of not repaying evil for evil, but rather blessing others. To this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Isn't it interesting that Peter here connects the imagery, and he does it again in chapter 3, that we are suffering servants just like Christ is a suffering servant. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through 9, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for, the, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Suffering servants won't run away from the emotional messiness that especially conflict can bring. They won't fake it. That's a burden they're willing to carry. They're willing to pay the penalty that is owed to them when people sin against you. That's what you're doing when you forgive. You don't just sweep it under the rug. Somebody has to pay that emotional penalty. And it's either going to be that person, you're going to make them pay by how you treat them, how you talk to them, how you imagine them, or you're going to pay. But again, that's what Jesus did, right? He paid our wages. He paid for our death by dying on a cross. You'll suffer so that you can forgive. And I mean it when I say this is like a long-term commitment. Suffering servants endure. We have endurance. They're committed long-term. It's something that lasts. You know, we, 
we rightfully honor married couples for like, wow, you've been married for 50 years. Like we know there's something admirable, respectful. Like I want to be like that. We recognize those who have served a long time, their long terms of service. And in the church, we should value endurance more. Stability, steadfastness. Anyone can come and be passionate for three months, but those who make a difference are those who are patient. What's another word for patience in the Bible? Long-suffering. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10 through 11 says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Man, we got to pray for that. I don't usually pray for like that endurance and patience with joy. But suffering servants have stamina. They're the heroes of our church who are week in, week out. They're ordinary Christians. Maybe they don't even have a title. They show up every week. They're not sometime Christians where they just show up sometimes. Every week they show up, they pray for others, they teach others, they encourage others. They do it for years without complaint. Revelation 2, 2 to 3, this, um, in this section, Jesus actually says, you know, I have something against you, church. But what he did say This is what he said they did well. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. That's admirable. Every leadership manual, you know, they say stuff like leaders um, overestimate what they can accomplish in one year and they underestimate what they can accomplish in 10 years. Stick around for that long. Love those who are so hard to love. That person right now that you're like, it would be so much easier if they just weren't here. That's commendable. Galatians 6, 9 through 10 says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. All these verses emphasize the need for a long-suffering, a burden-bearing love for saved sinners, the church, the family of God especially the family of God. We are in a church, or we are in a culture that just we want to sprint, we want immediate results, but suffering love is for those who are in it for the long haul. They're marathoners. Endure, long-suffering, pass the endurance test. Secondly, Second application, suffering servants or burden bearers have a conviction to lead, have a conviction to lead. And I don't care about a title. I'm not telling you to seek a title or power or authority. If, you're, if, you're, if you've been in any leadership position that is real, you know that leadership is a privilege and it's a burden. 
you know, long, long gone are the days when you wanted leadership positions, like when you're in youth group because, or high school or college because you think they represent glory or some power or some kind of respect or recognition. If that's why you're in leadership, you're naive and you've already disqualified yourself. But 2 Timothy and 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are known as like the leadership epistles or the pastoral epistles. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, gives a picture of Christian leadership. And verse 1 says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust a faithful man who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. What do soldiers do? They suffer. They stand in our place. Because if they're not there, then everyone behind them will suffer. They stand in our place on our behalf. They take the blow so that others don't have to. That's why we thank those that are serving. We thank our soldiers for what they're doing because they stand in our place. They stand there so that we are protected. Leadership is a form of vicarious suffering. We're not suffering for others' atonement. We're not paying for their sins like Jesus did. Okay, let's make that clear. Only Jesus did that. But we are suffering on behalf of others and in the place of others. That's what a soldier does. As a leader, you're a shield. You're taking the blow so others don't have to. Randall always says, I think his name means shield. Shield. Always brings up, I'm a shield. I'm a shield, right? Hate that guy, right? <laughs> but if I could say something honest about that, I know Rand would bleed for me if he had to. That is a shield. And one of the scariest things about being a leader or anyone with influence in the church is that you're in a position where you make decisions that will influence others. That's scary. That's scary when you're sitting in front of a couple and you have to advise them or you have to support them, you have to encourage them, and it just seems like everything is falling apart and they're relying on you. You have to make a decision that will impact them. But leaders make hard decisions, and what will probably inevitably follow is that you'll be attacked for it, misunderstood, misquoted, misrepresented, and people may not like you, but you'll go through all that. You won't defend yourself. You don't have to like, oh, let me give you all the reasons why I'm right. You just do it so that healing and blessing flow to them, flow to those that you're leading. The only time you defend yourself is if the name of Jesus is at stake. That's a good soldier for Christ. It is so much easier to pass the responsibility. Well, who else is going to do it? Like when we're kids, we're just all sort of waiting around. Who's going to take the first step? It's so much easier to just wait, to be a bystander, to be on the bench, to be on the sidelines and just say someone else will do it. But when you see a leader who takes the step forward and they have courage and then everyone else suddenly has courage as well and they follow into the darkness. It's easier to pass a responsibility and get someone else to take ownership and responsibility. Why? Because if things go south, it's kind of on them. 
It's on the leader. They're the ones that will take the hit. They got to take responsibility. But if they don't step up, everyone will suffer. And running away from the battle when your commander is calling you to run towards it, it is a sin. It's self-preservation. And self-preservation is the opposite of of self-giving. That is self-love. When you just run away from others instead of self-sacrifice, denying yourself. As an overseer, let me just tell you, I can't tell you how many times I've felt the temptation to just be silent, keep my head down, not make any decisions, to just be paralyzed by all the different consequences of like, oh, what is this person going to think? How can we make sure everyone's on board? And you're never going to have everyone on board. And just paralyzed by my over-analysis, to my shame, I would rather avoid controversy. I would rather avoid confronting. I just, I just want peace. I am not confrontational by nature. I don't want to offend people. Can we just let it go? I don't want to have that conversation. I don't want to have to call out sin. Again, it's easier for me when I'm sitting there counseling someone, when I'm just, it's easier to say nothing. We, we, we oftentimes say nothing because we're good listeners. We oftentimes say nothing out of fear. You know, of course, I want to comfort, I want to listen, I want to empathize well, but the whole time I know there's this truth I need to make sure they know. I have to call out, I have to rebuke, but I'm too afraid of what they'll think of me. I'm too afraid of the responsibility that comes with it. That, oh man, I actually have to get in the trenches with you? And if something bad happens to them, that at least is somewhat on me. I got to deal with it so I don't speak up. I'd rather keep a safe distance. I'd rather just be a friend who just listens, not actually take responsibility. Cowardice is not a sin that we talk about a lot in the church. We're harder on people when they do something wrong rather than not doing what is right. But cowardice in the home, cowardice in the church, that is something we need to repent of. It's safer and easier and more comfortable to make no decision than it is to make any decision. And if that's the type of husband you are, if that's the type of leader you are, Everything in this sermon, I hope, is killing the idea that it's okay to be passive, indecisive, scared, coward. Leaders take the first step. They take the initiative instead of waiting around. They take responsibility when they they make a choice. If they make a wrong choice, then they make another choice to try to fix it. Either way, we have to have courage. Because what does it look like when you have bad leadership or passive leadership? We all know. I don't need to go into that. Every one of you have, you know, maybe you've complained about your boss or some leader or maybe a leader at church. Indecisiveness is one of history's greatest leadership killers. Passivity. But what does it look like when you have good leaders? who fear the Lord more than they fear man, leaders who are willing to suffer. They're first in line to suffer for others. 
2 Samuel 23, 2-4 said, The Spirit of Yahweh speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules, when one leads justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. We oftentimes hear stories, all the bad stories, and we're so scared of that, maybe rightfully so. But what about when you have a husband who leads or a pastor who leads or a boss who leads? Strong, humble leadership that knows God is in charge. It's life-giving. It's like light after a long night of darkness. And maybe you're rightly afraid of leadership or any kind of influence because you know how daunting it is, okay? That's a good thing. We had our leadership training course, and you know what? Pretty much we've had maybe 25 people go through our leadership. We have a six-week leadership training course at our, at our church. And you know what every single person says right after? Every single person says, man, this course just shows me that I shouldn't be a leader, right? I'm not ready for leadership. They get it. They're not naive because half the course is on the necessity of suffering. And we could try to muster up courage. You know, I could tell you, like youth group days, like, hey, you need to be like a Daniel, like a Moses, like Joshua, David, Peter, Paul, Elijah. But the message of the Bible is not to try to be like these men. You know, I see churches where it's like, we, we raise up champions for Christ, right? And I'm like, that's cool. I don't, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's not champions we need. We don't need people to be like Daniel. We need people to believe in Daniel's God. Believe in the God of Moses and Joshua who told them to be strong and courageous because he will be with them. Call me a cynic, but, you know, right now we're in a peacetime. I'm thankful. Like, people ask me, how's church? Oh, it's good. It's good. There's no major fires we're putting out, like, overseers meetings. I'm like, oh, I sort of enjoy them now, you know? Like, it's like, yeah, it's where we, we, we laugh together, right? Um, we're in a, but I know we're in a spiritual war. It's coming. You have to expect that. Someone recently asked me, oh, it's like, oh, I haven't really seen the fires you're talking about. And, you know, it takes time. Just wait. It'll happen. Get in the trenches. You'll see. It'll come. Because people are struggling. People are suffering. People are drifting away from Christ. They're renouncing their faith. The enemy is trying to take ground. And we need leaders. We need suffering servants who are going to take initiative, run towards the war, get in the trench, be willing to stick out their head out of the trench, knowing they might get hit, and still do so in love. That's a suffering servant. I'm not saying go be a leader, try to, try to be, get a position or anything like that. I'm saying you will bear that person's burden. There's no passivity. There's no cowardice. There's no indecisiveness in you. You go after them instead of waiting around for someone else to do it. Believe in the God of the Bible. That's what leaders are called to do. Let me close by sharing a story that I think um, 
has long, it's for long, years now, it's motivated me to love the church. And I think it explains why I love the church. There's a story near the end of John, in John chapter 21. And if you're not familiar with the context of John, you know, we've, you maybe know the apostle Peter. And Peter is an up and down Christian. He's the one that everyone can relate to. But he's the one that said, you know, Jesus, I will follow you. And even if everyone else falls away, I will die with you. Uh, Even if everyone else, immense pride. But as Jesus is being arrested, as he's being taken away, you know, he gets confronted. They ask him, are you with Jesus? And three times he denies Jesus. He has failed epically. uh, All the disciples pretty much ran away except maybe one guy that was there, right? And they've betrayed Jesus. They failed to follow him. So what do they do? In John chapter 21, Jesus, right after Jesus' resurrection, they see him, they're happy, but now some time has passed and they have put themselves on the bench. Like, we failed. We can't be followers of Christ. I can't do this anymore. I didn't deny myself. I denied him. And so they go back to what they know. They go back to their day jobs. They go back to fishing. And I'm sure Peter, at that moment, maybe, maybe rightfully so, he's just like, man, I'm not reliable. I have failed so many times. I'm so up and down. I should stay on the bench. I have too much of a past, too many failures, too much guilt, too, too weak of a faith. And in this scene, it's like an awkward scene where Jesus is like, come have breakfast with me. And they're eating. And after they are finishing a breakfast, which I imagine would have been like an awkward breakfast, right? Peter and Jesus are just sort of sitting together. And Peter is like knows he's very tentative. There seems to be like a distance. And in John chapter 21, after breakfast, it says, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? And he calls him Simon, which is sort of his way of saying, like, you've been shaky. Because when he calls him Peter, it's like, you've been the rock. You've been the rock. But, but Simon, Simon, you've been shaky. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, feed my lambs. Simon, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Tend my sheep. A third time, Simon, do you love me? And this time, Peter is grieved, and all he can do is appeal to Jesus' all-knowing and understanding heart. He's like, Jesus, you know all things. You know that I love you. He has nothing to boast in. He can't be like, hey, Jesus, remember all my years of service? You remember how faithful I've been? Look how many chapters of the Bible are read. Look how many teams I'm serving. He has nothing to stand upon in front of Jesus. He can't brag about his faithfulness. All he can say is like, God, you know, you know that I love you. Then Peter, I have a job for you. And I'm going to trust you at this job because now you know how broken you are. Now you have lost self-confidence and you understand who I am. Now you know my forgiveness Here's the job I have for you. Love the ones that I love. 
love the ones that I love. Love my church. Love the flock. You're the leader now, Peter. You're ready because you are poor of spirit. You are patakas. You have nothing. You recognize that you have nothing to offer apart from God. You recognize how broken you are. You recognize your need. Now lead my church. Because you believe in me, not yourself, you are ready to lead. And the only way to love as a suffering servant is to understand all that you've gotten from Christ. Love my sheep, Peter. Feed my sheep. Tend my sheep. Take care of the church. Even when you got, get nothing out of it, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me by loving my church. And I love how Jesus doesn't rip into, it's just like, wow, man, you know, like, Jesus doesn't rip into Peter. There's so much grace here. He could have been like, Peter, you're such a failure. Get out of here. How can you live with yourself, Peter? I saw you betray me. You're useless, Peter. I trained you for three years, and that's what you did? You can't be in charge of my church. You're not even my disciple. No, Jesus doesn't say any of that. Instead, he restores Peter. He calls him to love the church. And he says, Peter, you're shaky right now, but one day you'll love my sheep so much that you will die for them. Just like I died for you. One day you're going to be led to a place you don't want to go, just like I was. And you'll do it, Peter. You won't fail. You'll become like a rock because you believe in me. You're not there yet, but you will be. So follow me. We haven't arrived. None of us have arrived. We're all shaky, and yet Jesus says, follow me. Believe in me. I just spent like almost an hour and I could summarize it real simply. Like, what is it that keeps me going? I think about the suffering of Jesus. And then I think about what I get to do for him. I'm a suffering servant and he is worthy. And if you love Christ, you'll love the church the bride of Christ. He died for her. Who are we to bash his bride? It's his body, it's his family, it's his bride, his people. If you love him, you will love what he loves. You will love the ones that he loves. And everything in the sermon, I hope, you know, it's just, it won't be easy but this is what I get to do for him. It's not because the people around me are just so easy to love. It's because he loved me. And I get to suffer for him. I get to join in his suffering. I get to participate in his suffering. I get to have partnership. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. To join in his suffering, to have partnership. Koinonia, to share in that. And there's a power, there's an intimacy that comes when we share in the suffering of Christ. 
He's not asking us to do anything He hasn't already done for us. Lay down your life. And how we treat His family is how we treat Him. You want to love me? If you love my wife, you are loving me. How you love my kids is how you are loving me. If you don't treat my family right, that's how you're treating me. And in the same way, Christ is so passionately committed to the good of his church. And if you love him, again, you will love and be passionately committed to your church as well. Not because we're worthy, but because he's worthy. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. Follow after him by having a burden-bearing, suffering love for the church. If that's your prayer, say amen. Let's pray. Galatians 6 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And again, that's not something we have to do, but we get to do that because that's what Christ did for us. And it's my prayer for you. And what I want to hear when I meet Jesus is that he'll say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. You have suffered well. That's not something we could do on our own. So let me give us some time to pray. Remember the suffering servant. Father, we are so weak and often so centered upon ourselves, but we're so thankful it's not dependent, your love for us is not dependent on how faithful we are. Yet you, you, you love us even when we fall so, so short. And you call us now in response to your forgiveness and grace and mercy to love those that are here in this room, those around us, would you enable us to love beyond our natural capacity? Enable us to joyfully suffer and to serve, to rejoice even when there are afflictions and pain and sacrifice. I pray that when we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that thou would long-term fuel us, give us endurance to press on ahead, to not grow weary, to love your body, to love the church. God, it's easy to think that that's purely a burden, but it's a privilege. It's a privilege when we get to walk together. It's a privilege when we get to serve you. And so in our, give us humility so that we can bear one another's burdens. Joyfully give us humility so that at times when we're, our burden is too heavy, we could 
we can call upon others, we can call upon you because you care for us and you love us. So thank you for your patience. Thank you for being long-suffering towards us, your rebellious children. Thank you for always being gentle and kind and sympathetic. You are worthy of all that we can offer and more. So God, in response, we just want to love your church. We want to love your church. I pray that Savior Community Church would be a place where we have joyful burden bearers, joyful suffering servants who do it for your glory to extend grace to more and more people. And as, as a result, worship would happen. So thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.